If you believe you are a group practice, well, let's do the group practice dance. First, you have to meet the group practice definition, and then you can avail yourself of the in-office ancillary services exception under the Stark Law. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, this is part two of the group practice discussion under the Stark Law. And in the previous episode, so part one, I discussed the group practice definition. And the group practice definition is a prerequisite in order to get into the in-office ancillary services exception. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, it's the group practice exception. Well, no, it's it's like a key to the lock that you have to you know put the key in, and that key is the group practice definition in order to turn the in-office ancillary services exception lock in order to make sure that the compensation or ownership of a group practice will comply with the strict requirements requirements under the Stark Law. And the focus of this episode is going to be on the in-office ancillary services exception, but let's recap quickly the group practice definition. First off, it has to be a single legal entity that can have multiple divisions. The services must be performed either by the referring physician, another member of the physician practice, or supervised by a physician within the practice. It has to be legally organized with the physicians, the members of the practice, offering the full range of services and substantially the 75% test of all the patient care services of those members in the group must be provided through the group practice. Using the group practice's billing number, the receipts or income from the group must be income of the group, and also the overhead expenses should be determined on a previously determined method. Remember, there's a distinction between physicians in the group, which can be independent contractors as well as part-time employees as well as members of the group, as well as the, um, the referrals. You cannot compensate somebody directly or indirectly based upon the volume or value of referrals, but there can be a distribution of profits uh, with some of those exceptions. You can't be direct but you can divide them based upon a per capita or a surrogate, uh, like uh, using work RVUs or number of patient encounters. 
and also that if you're going to establish pools, that pooled compensation and distribution of profit must be at least five physicians. And you can have productivity bonuses that for personally performed services for physicians in the group practice. And you can also compensate for incident to services as long as it's not determined in a manner that is directly related to the volume or value of referrals. So remember, like outpatient prescription drugs, therapy services, laboratory services, and the like could be incident to the ordering physician. And that's in order to distribute the profit that is coming from uh, those designated health services. So now I'm going to turn to the in-office ancillary services exception. And again, this is the exception, not the definition. And so just like it indicates, this would be an exception that would apply to allow physicians within a group practice to refer designated health services within the group practice. So to meet the in-office ancillary services exception, there are questions that need to be asked and answered. So first off is where are the services performed, how are they performed, and who is performing the service. So let's first tackle who can perform the services and meet the in-office ancillary services exception. Well, first off, the referring physician, obviously, or physicians who are members of the same group practice as the referring physicians, or individuals who are directly supervised by the referring physician or another physician in that group practice. And physicians in the group practice, such as employees or independent contractors of the group practice. So basically, as long as they are a, a member of the group practice, and you, you, you know, remember those 75% test. So a member of the group practice, a W-2 employee of the group practice, or an independent contractor of the group practice. That's who can perform the services or individuals who are supervised by such individuals. Uh, so these are like the techs and uh, nurse practitioners or physician assistants. So next we turn to where are the services provided? And this is, gets a little nonsensical because you would think a practice site is a practice site is a practice site. Uh, but according to Stark, that is not true. Under the building component of the in-office ancillary services, there is this definition called same building. And I'm using air quotes. You guys can all see me using my air quotes. So same building or a centralized building. So let's focus on the centralized building because that's the, the easiest one. And that is a facility that the group practice uses full-time, either leasing the space full-time or they own the building. So if those services are performed within that centralized building, then that would meet the building test. And that's probably going to knock out 90% of physician practices will meet the centralized building test. Now, it gets more complicated if the space is not used on a full-time basis and not rented on a full-time basis. So they come up with three separate definitions of the same building. And some of these are physician uh, centric. Some of them are patient centric. So I guess my word of caution here is if 
physicians are providing space that they're not using on a full-time basis, then I think you need to slow down and either analyze the same building definition under the Stark Law or call someone like me uh, to help you through the analysis to see if we're meeting the same building requirement under the Stark Law. So again, there are three sub-definitions for the same building. So the first one is The physicians have an office that is open to patients for medical services at least 35 hours per week, and a member of the group practice, again, uh, again, this is a member of the group practice, this is not a physician in the group practice, and we have to listen to episode part one to understand that distinction, but a member of the group practice provides physician services at least 30 hours per week. Per week. So these are physician services to patients. Open 35 hours, and a member of the group practice has to provide services at least 30 hours per week for patients of that group practice. That's same building definition number one. Same building definition number, number two is the group practice owns or rents an office that is normally open to patients for medical services at least eight hours per week. And the referring physician provides physician services to patients at that space at least six hours per week. So this is focusing on the referring physician. So the office must be open for patient services at least eight hours per week. And the referring physician provides physician services. So this is not just DHS services. This would have to be direct patient care services at least six hours per week. Eight hours per week open, six hours referring physician, direct patient care services. That's sub-definition number two. Sub-definition number three is the referring group of referring physicians group practice. Again, the office has to be open for services at least eight hours per week. So just like definition number two, it's open for at least eight hours per week. But here, either not just the referring physician, but either the referring physician orders DHS while seeing patients on the premises, so does not have to meet that six-hour test, but he's ordering, he or she is ordering DHS while he or she's on the premises, or a member of the referring physician's group practice is on the premises when the DHS is performed. And Either the referring physician or the member of the group practice is on that site for at least six hours per week. So again, we have both these this eight hours open to the to patients to the public, uh, and then six hours of services being performed. But some of them, uh, the one test is only looking at the referring physician. The other test is looking at the referring physician or another member of the group practice and is focusing in on when the DHS service is being performed. So that's the building. So we have the same building and also we have the centralized building. Now, how are the services billed? And just like when I discussed the group practice, that it has to be billed by the group practice uh, or an entity that's wholly owned by the group practice, such as a billing company. Uh, So you have to remember that we have to have a single legal entity with a unified business and a predetermined distribution of expenses and income. Uh, So when they're billed, then it has to be billed by the group practice or a wholly owned subsidiary of the group practice for the performance of billing services. But they have to be receipts of the group practice. 
Now, next, I am going to go a little bit granular because there's a difference between what services are ancillary that can be referred and what services are incident to. So as I indicated in part one, a physician can receive compensation based upon the services that are performed incident to that physician. But under the, uh, the in-office ancillary services exception, then you can refer ancillary services, but if they're not incident to, the physician can still refer the ancillary services, and they can be billed by the group practice. But if they're not incident to, then the ancillary services could not be given credit to the physician under the performance of a productivity bonus. Um, you may have to play that back a few times in order to get all of that. But here are some examples of what services are ancillary to a physician that that the in-office ancillary services exception cover. Things like physical therapy, radiation therapy, infusions, clinical laboratory services, the technical component of radiology services, prosthetics, orthotics, and prosthetic devices and supplies, some DME, and I'll talk about uh, durable medical equipment in a second, nutritional equipment and supplies, as well as outpatient prescription drugs. So all those could be ancillary and can be referred by physicians within the group practice, and they can be billed and retained. Those services can be billed for and retained by the group practice. However, they may not be incident to uh, which means only that the physician may not be able to receive productivity compensation unless we can determine that they are also incident to as well as being ancillary. And now I'm assuming some of you are saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, no, sorry. That's what makes the management and oversight of group practices somewhat challenging for Stark Law compliance. So, you know, from my perspective, it's just easier just to to pool the revenue that's coming from designated health services and divide that on a per capita basis. Um, some of the other surrogate methods, like you divide it based upon work RVUs, are also fine, uh, but that's you're aggregating profit versus a productivity bonus. So you're not just giving credit. So that that's the distinction between the division of profit versus giving a productivity bonus uh, that is not directly tied to profit. Uh, so, uh, again, I mean, if I was operating it, I would just put everything into a profit, profit bucket, and then I would divide that profit bucket based upon either per capita or one of the surrogate methods that I have talked about. So next, let's talk about durable medical equipment. Uh, durable medical equipment, as most of you know, are designated health services. So the Stark Law does apply to designated health services. Uh, for DME. So it does apply for DME. However, um, in order for the group practice to actually bill and retain, then that DME that is referred to by the physician, the durable medical equipment can can be uh, billed by the group practice if it's used either in the office or to permit the uh, the patient to what they call ambulate from, meaning depart from the physician's office. Uh, so it's either you know things like crutches, walkers, or canes, and the like. Also, it does apply to blood glucose monitors, uh, but it has to be uh, provided either in that central building that we talked about or the same building as the patient-physician encounter. 
and the DME must be furnished personally by the physician who's ordering it, a physician in the same group practice, or an employee of the same group practice. So it does say an employee, so you couldn't bring in uh, somebody from a DME company and have that DME company provide that service and have the group practice bill for that. Now, the DME company can, uh, but the group practice would not be able to. And lastly, before I get to some of the cases here, uh, some of the key, one of the key provisions of the in-office ancillary services exception are patient notice requirements, patient notice requirements. So there are certain notice requirements physicians must give to patients as it applies to some, uh, some designated health services. So if the group practice is providing MRI, CT, or PET, that's a MRI, CT, or PET, then they have to disclose the fact that they have an interest or are billing for the MRI, CT, and PET through that group practice, and they must provide the patient with a notice of five other suppliers of the service. So you have to give them notice that here is a list of five other suppliers of MRI, CT and PET. And also, I did emphasize the word suppliers. It doesn't say provider. So like a hospital is a provider, not a supplier, according to Medicare. Um, Even though I think they supply medical services or they could supply MRI, CT, and PET, they're not defined as a supplier. So if a hospital is providing MRI, CT, or PET, then the physician group does not need to identify the hospital competitors. It's only the other suppliers of MRI, CT, and PET. And there also may be state notice requirements. Uh, Like I know in a lot of states, if a physician has an ownership interest in, in something, then the physician must provide notice to the patient. And usually you'll see these forms and say, you know, the physician has an ownership interest in this MRI facility, and this uh, physician believes this is in your, the patient, best medical interest if he is going to refer you to this MRI facility. Uh, I usually don't sign those as a patient because I said I want to have a conversation because uh, I'm one of, you know, a pretty sophisticated purchaser of, of medical services. And so uh, just because a physician has an ownership interest from my perspective, and this will be the government's perspective, does not mean that that's the best place for me to have th- that type of procedure. But it is a notice requirement in order to meet the in-office ancillary services exception. So now I'm going to hit on a few settlements, just so you guys know that uh, settlements do exist. Uh, So the first one is an Alabama-based Diagnostic Physicians Group, PC, Infirmary Medical Clinics, PC, and Infirmary Health System, Inc. So those are the entities that settled for $24.5 million dollars for the violation of the group practice definition and the in-office ancillary services exception. And I'm just going to whittle these things down, that the physicians were paid a percentage of collections 
or otherwise were directly compensated for their ordering of diagnostic, imaging, and laboratory services referred by the physicians in the practice. So $24.5 million. Next one is out of New York, Cardiovascular Specialist PC. They were doing business as New York Heart Center. The settlement was $1.33 million. And the group physicians uh, were paid based on a formula that directly allocated the profit or margin for diagnostic CT scans and nuclear tests that the ordering physicians did not personally perform. Uh, and I think that part of the allegation here was that they did not personally supervise uh, the performance of those services. So they, And also, I guess the last thing is that they were not incident two. Um, so so $1.33 million. The next one, and I get questions quite frequently, is do doctors ever settle? And here's a case where some doctors uh, did settle. We had uh, two doctors uh, settled as well as Salinas Valley Urology Associates and Advanced Radiation Oncology Center. And here we had physicians who were ordering imaging-guided radiation therapy, uh, IGRT, uh, but they did not generate that business from within the referring physician's group practices. So these were leased urologists, and they were referring their IRGT to another facility. And that other facility was billing, paying, and giving credit to these leased urologists. So the fact that they were different, uh, being generated from a different facility, uh, they did not meet the group practice definition or the in-office ancillary services exception. Next is Baldwin Ball and Joint, and this is a settlement back in 2019, settled for $1.2 million. And in this one, the compensation was paid to the physicians in the group directly related to the physician owner's referrals of physical therapy, MRI, and x-ray. So again, we want to go back to if you're going to provide some type of productivity bonus or uh, also profit, then you want to make sure that we meet with those strict definitions. Lastly, just want to throw out there that there was an advisory opinion that was issued, and this uh, dealt with a group practice that had ownership of two subsidiary corporations. These subsidiaries were separately incorporated. And the question was, could the group practice that owned two separately incorporated subsidiaries, and the ownership was 100% by this group practice, whether or not that would meet the group practice definition? And CMS came back and said yes, uh, gave us a favorable opinion, that as long as the subsidiaries were wholly owned by the group practice, CMS, in their opinion, felt that it, it would meet the single legal entity requirement. Uh, as long as, and here are the exceptions or the contingent uh, contingencies in this advisory opinion, that all clinical employees and contractors of the subsidiaries were employed or contracted by the group practice. So they all had to be employed or contracted through the group practice itself, not the subsidiaries. And all the revenue and expenses of the subsidiaries would be treated as revenues and expenses of the group practice. So it was the group practice's revenue, not the separate subsidiaries revenue. So that is an advisory opinion uh, that you also can look at. So that was issued by CMS. So here are the three Captain Integrity punch points. Uh, Captain Integrity punch point number one is know what type of facility in which the services are provided. Is this a centralized building 
which is the easy one, you know, it's used exclusively, or is this the same building so it's not used full-time by the group practice because you have to meet that definition in order to avail yourself of this exception. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two is know the difference between ancillary services and incident two services as it relates to providing productivity compensation uh, for the referring physicians. And lastly, and probably most importantly, is Captain Integrity Punch Point number three is multi-million dollar settlements have occurred in this area. Uh, so this is one where the Quitam uh, relators, as well as the government, would be interested uh, if you blow the group practice definition or do not strictly conform yourself to the in-office ancillary services exception. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.